Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, and me, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker. Our guest today is Marcello DeCintio. Marcello DeCintio is the author of five books. Harmatan, Wind Across West Africa, won the Henry Creasel Award for Best First Book. Poets and Pahlevins, A Journey into the Heart of Iran, won the Wilfred Eggleston Prize for Best Nonfiction at the Alberta Book Awards. Walls, Travels Along the Barricades, and Pay No Heed to the Rockets, Palestine in the Present. Tense. We're both winners of the W.O. Mitchell City of Calgary Book Prize, with the former winning the 2013 Shaughnessy Cohen Prize for political writing. And Shaughnessy Cohen, for those who don't know, was a remarkable member of Parliament from Windsor. His magazine writing has appeared in publications such as the International New York Times, The Walrus, En Route, Canadian Geographic, and Afar. DeCintio has served as a writer in residence at the Calgary Public Library, the University of Calgary, and the Palestine Writing Workshop. And he teaches nonfiction writing at the annual Wordsworth Youth Writing Residency. Marcello DeCintio's latest book, which is earning a lot of praise, is Driven, The Secret Lives of Taxi Drivers, published by Biblioasis in 2021. He will be appearing virtually at Bookfest Windsor in October 2021. Welcome, Marcello. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So much of your writing has been inspired by your travels. Your previous books have resulted from your journeys around Africa, the Middle East, Europe, Asia, and the U.S.-Mexico border. So we can't help wondering how you've been doing through the last year and a half when travel Mm -hmm. has been so restricted. Has the COVID era had any impact on your writing? Oh my goodness. So, so much impact. I don't know where to start with that question. Um, It's from the travel perspective, you know, yeah, like you said, all all my books have been travel related books, even, even driven, even though I didn't leave Canada to write the taxi book. And I did, I did travel around the country. I did the math last year and uh, this is the longest I've gone without doing an international trip. Like since I first started traveling in the nineties, like the, the span of, of, over a year, I've, I've never gone that long uh, since, uh, since I was a much, much younger man. Um, so that certainly impacted the kind of writing that I do, obviously, you know, you know, I, I was, I've, I've been, I've been stuck at home like the rest of us. Um, and I found that I just the general gloom and anxiety around the pandemic has also really dampened my creative powers, you know, and, and um, I've gotten very little writing done. Uh, uh, in, in the past year and a half, I was very fortunate that that the driven was was pretty much finished before the pandemic started. I had some edits to do, but it was I was done the real the real writing of it. Um, so I found I had a really hard difficult time writing. I even had a difficult time reading. You know, like I, I, had, a, I had a really hard time sitting down with a, with a good book in the past you know eighteen months or so. You know, but I, I sat like like so many of us did. I sat and watched garbage television and you know binge watched. Tiger King, like everybody else, but, but like consuming good art and good literature, even good TV and film. I just didn't do it. Uh, I have some, some of my colleagues managed in the, in the course of the pandemic to, to write a novel, 
And, you know, I hate those people so much um, because they're, because most of us that I th- I've spoken to were unable to do it. And I, I can't wait for this kind of this gloom to lift. Um, <laughs> that doesn't show much sign of lifting, particularly here in Alberta when we're dealing with some terrible, terrible decisions from our leaders. Um, but I can't wait that I can, I can't wait to get the, the, the creativity flowing again because it, it, it sure hasn't been. In your award-winning book, Walls Travels Along the Barricades, you've written about border fences and walls and the human compulsion to shelter ourselves from one another, separating us from them. Uh, So that seems to be all about the pandemic as well, right? So Hmm. how would you bring this idea of the pandemic era to uh, someone who's well-versed in the ways of the ways humans divide themselves. Yeah, what a great question. Never thought of that before. Um, the <laughs> the final uh, point of, of my book, Walls, however, was that uh, we may have this human compulsion to fence ourselves off. Uh, we've been doing it, you know, since time immemorial. But the greater human compulsion is to break through those walls. The greater human compulsion is is to travel. We are we are we are uh, you know as a species. You know, we don't like to be hemmed in. You know, if, if we're going to stay at home, it's because we are choosing to stay at home. And so that's hasn't been the case uh, uh, over the past year. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's this is at, at, this is, I think this has made very, very few people happy. This has felt this has felt uh, natural to very, very few. Um, and, and, you know, <laughs> us travel writers, at least of all. Going back in time, when and how did you first discover your passion for writing documentary literature? Oh, another great question. And thank you for using that term documentary literature. You know, the, I think the term, yeah, we, can, we can talk an hour about why the term creative nonfiction is so lousy. Um, I do quite love documentary literature. I, I wish I would have invented it. I did not. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I think when I was, a, when I was really little, like when I was, when I was a little kid, I wanted, I liked writing stories. And that was always something I had kind of in the back of my head as something I could do. I studied biology university you know I was gonna I was planning on becoming a scientist and that you know two and a half years into a microbiology degree I realized that I didn't love it anymore which is kind of terrifying um so I thought well maybe I can be a writer there was a part of me that I always wanted to write but I felt I didn't have anything to write about you know I didn't I didn't have a brain for fiction and I, I still don't um I wrote some terrible poems when I was in university and no one needs to know anything about those um so I really felt like I had nothing to write about and it, and it took a year-long trip to West Africa, uh, uh, where I was a volunteer biology teacher for a few months in, in Ghana, um, and then spent so I spent three months teaching biology in this in this little village school in, in Ghana, and then traveled for nine more months. So I was gone for almost an entire year, I think 363 days. And then I had things to write about. You know, every day was was a story. Every day something interesting happened, or I saw something that that was story worthy, whether it was something severe like you know, I, I, I came pretty close to dying of malaria on that trip, but I also ate a bunch of crazy foods. You know what I mean? So there was, there was all these kinds of things that were story worthy. And I really realized during that trip that I didn't have to make anything up. Thank goodness, because I, I can't. And so it was it was it was it, it was the traveling first that kind of introduced me to the world of, of, you know, of documentary literature. And then eventually I realized, well, I don't have to leave home at all, do I? I mean, we're, we're, we're surrounded by amazing stories. And, and if. If there's a point to driven, it's it's just that that I don't we don't have to leave Canada to meet 
people with incredible epic life stories you know they surround us and uh sometimes they drive us to and from the airport wonderful so in normal times how do you typically carve out time for your writing do you have a particular routine to keep yourself on track Oh, I, I so wish I did. I so wish I could. I, I so wish I could lie to you and tell you that I'm one of those writers who gets up at five in the morning and and pounds out the you know the the, the three thousand words that day. I have a I have terrible. I have terrible inertia as as a writer. Like once I get going, it's fine, but it takes me a long time to get going. You know, I've been doing this. I've been doing this for you know twenty years, and I still haven't figured out what the best way for me to work is. Um, I am fortunate, however, that in the last, you know, several years of my career, I have been doing writing or writing related activities full time. So, so that my, my, you know, I don't have, I, I don't have a, a day job that I, that, that I, need, I need, I need to, I need to do between, between writing assignments, uh, which, you know, with nonfiction, with documentary literature, you can, you can, you can get the, you, you get the magazine assignments more than you can if you were a fiction writer, for example. So between those assignments, between the residencies, the occasional teaching gig, between the grants, the advances, I managed to cobble together a, 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 a life in which that I can spend all my work time, you know, on on the page, or, or at least doing writing related activities. Like I, like I said, I really envy those people who have the uh, who have that that daily discipline that you know that they that they they have those they have their daily word counts or they have their early mornings or they have their late nights or whatever it is and and. Uh, um, I don't have it. So I, I cobble together my words when I can and when, when, when I can finally kind of overcome that, that, that sense of uh, kind of dreaded inertia that seems to follow me on a daily basis. And, and like we talked before, more so in the last 18 months, that inertia has been like, you know, wading through concrete uh, for the past little while. That's a very uninspiring answer. And I apologize to all the writers out there who are, who are hoping for, for, for some secrets. I, I'm waiting to hear it. We appreciate the candor, actually. It's very refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> and ironically, your latest work is Driven, The Secret Lives of, <laughs> of Taxi Drivers. Um, and this book and the entire premise underlying it are quite fascinating. In it, you explore the borderland of the North American taxi. Can you tell us more about the concept of the taxi as a border and why you decided to investigate the lives of taxi drivers? Yeah, the, the 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 interior of a taxi cab is such a unique and almost almost bizarre and unnatural place, right? You know that nowhere, I can't think of another place where two strangers will be in such close proximity for such a potential long period of time and exchange so little, right? Like there's there's this, you know, yes, we we engage with the person who pours our coffee, we engage with the person who who bags our groceries, but not for so long and not so close. And, you know, so it's a really unique, unique space. I started thinking about it, at, you know, as a travel writer, and especially considering by the Walls book that you mentioned before, you know, borders are front of mind for me. And if you look at what, what exists within the taxi cab, you have this kind of this border between, uh, you know, the, the working class and every other kind of class. You know, whether you're a rich man or a poor man, you, you, end, up, you end up in the backseat of a cab at some, at some period. It's, it's becomes, it's... It's often, especially in in the West, the the border between um, white people and and people of color. I mean, the drivers for the most part in North America are, are, are you know drivers of drivers of color. It's often the the border between people like me who who've been in Canada for for a generation or two and 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 newcomers. 
And it is that border, like I said before, between this kind of silence and story, right? You know, we, we walk into this into this space where we're in, in such close proximity to a stranger, and other than blurting out our destination, we usually are just, just silently stare at our Twitter feeds for the for the for the duration. And so there's this there's a strange kind of invisible wall of silence that separates us from the front seat, um, us from the from the from the man. It's usually a man who we only know by these kind of reflected eyes in the rearview mirror. And and so I thought that was a very interesting kind of it's kind of buffer zone that, that, that we engage with every time we every time we sit in a, sit in the back seat. It's, it's such a unique space. And about the lives too, it, you know, as, as I said before, I've been traveling around the world. You know, you're writing about the lives of, of, of people far away. You know, the, the book before this, I, I did three trips to, to Palestine to meet with uh, with Palestinian writers and poets to get to get a sense of what it means to be a Palestinian. You know, in Palestine these days with you know, contemporary their contemporary lives. Um, that's my mo is to do these big trips and and, and and meet these fascinating people. And I started to wonder, well. What, what am I missing on the rides to and from the airport? You know, what are, what are the stories that are right, literally? And so I started, I started to, to look into those. So how did you get connected with the taxi drivers that you interviewed for the book? You know, I had a couple of false starts, to be honest. You know, some people ask me, do you just, do you just hop in the back of a cab and start talking? I'm like, no, that would have been very expensive and, uh, and, and probably not the most efficient use, use, of, my, use of my time. My first idea, which turned out to be a bad one, was to go through the the taxi brokerage companies themselves. To, to, you know, to call up the to call up the big taxi companies and say, "Okay, I'm writing this book. You certainly must have drivers with, with fascinating life stories. Can you introduce me to them?" And I got I got almost nowhere doing that. And 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 the reason why is because you know cabbies are incredibly busy people. It, 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 is a, it is an occupation that's often kind of media averse. I mean, and like, like cabbies don't get a, a lot of good press often. And, uh, and there was nothing in it for them. You know, let, let's, let's face it, you know, you know spit, blabbing at me for an hour uh, it, they, for my book really doesn't really does nothing for them. They could spend, they could spend that hour driving fares around and, and you know, and, you know, and, and doing the work. So what ended up happening instead is, is, Almost all the the drivers I spoke to were 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 referrals of some kind. You know, somebody knew somebody who drove cabs. Someone knew someone who had a great story whose uncle was a cabbie. Um, some of them I found their stories, you know, doing research online. You know, they had been interviewed in in on on the CBC say for some other reason, um, and so I, I would seek them out that way. Um, a couple of them were were friends <laughs> friends who knew I was writing this book. Who ended up in someone's back seat and started chatting with their driver, and and you know got the got the kernel of an interesting story and said you know can my friend Marcello give you a call? I got three that way, uh, but it was all it was always it was always through it was almost always through a, a third party, and that way it wasn't this you know this interrogation by some strange journalist that they didn't know about, um, and I never wanted to interview them in their cabs. I never did that once because I never wanted that to be this this client driver relationship. I really wanted us to sit down in a place where they were comfortable. Uh, you know, I spent, I, I, I met, I met drivers in at their homes, you know, you know, on their, on their kitchen tables. I met a lot of them at Tim Hortons, um, which is maybe the most comfortable space for our nation's cabbies. Uh, I drank a lot of that coffee, but it was, it was, I wanted to have long ranging 
you know, st- conversations when we were not on the meter. And, 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 and that involved meeting people outside of the, outside of the business sort of thing. So you've talked a bit about um, how you wanted to engage with the taxi drivers. I'm wondering what kinds of stories you didn't want to tell, what kinds yeah. of stories you were looking for, and how surprised you were by the stories that you ended up hearing. Yeah, you know, it's funny, uh, and I'm sure this won't come as a surprise to you. Every time I mentioned to, to somebody that was writing a book about taxi drivers, their first question was, oh, how many surgeons did you meet driving cab? How many engineers did you meet driving cab? This kind of the, the idea this kind of this cliche uh, of the of the driver who's 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 a who's a, who's a man probably from Africa, Middle East, or South Asia, who was a doctor, engineer, dentist, pharmacist, something in in where they come from, come to Canada, find their credentials are not recognized, and end up, and end up driving cab. And you know that I found a statistic that there's more PhDs driving cabs in Toronto than anywhere in the world. Um, so those, so that, that is an archetype that actually exists, but I wasn't looking for those guys, you know, cause I think we know those, we know those stories already. That, that's not, that's not a surprising story. And really how much different would all those stories be? You know, if this guy was a pharmacist from Iran and he's driving cab and this guy was a cardiologist from Bangladesh driving a cab, you know, what, what's the, what's the difference in the narrative other than what you should be doing and where you came from? So I was wanting, I wanted to find stories that were more surprising than that. And another, another stories I didn't want to find either, which I, I kind of call in the book, the, the taxi noir stories, these the, like the stories of, you know, you know, sex, drugs, and misbehavior in the back seats of cabs, you know, these, these nocturnal nights, you know, driving late at night in the, in the, in the gritty city stories. And again, not because those stories aren't interesting because they totally are. And a lot of the drivers I met really wanted to tell these stories about the, the shenanigans but again, we, we know those stories. You know, those, are, those, are, those are the stories that are part of pop. When you think of taxi drivers in, in pop culture, you know, that's the kind of thing we, our brains automatically go to. So my, my, I was, it was funny. I, I, had more of a, I had more of an idea of the story I didn't want than of the stories that I did want. And that was, that was a bit of a rare uh, position to, for me to be in as a writer because usually, usually I know what I'm looking for instead of knowing what I'm not. But I just wanted stories I hadn't heard before. And my goodness, the the drivers delivered. I mean, I mean the 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 range of stories that I, that I was told, the 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 epic lives that 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 these men and women had led, um, from you know the, the the wars they fought in or escaped from, the, yeah, the the, the multi layered uh, sorts of tales that they told were, were so fascinating. Originally, when I first conceived of the structure of the book. Right now, the book is written, I have a different cabbie for each chapter. But originally, I had this idea, I was going to have them thematic. I was going to have a chapter on war stories. I'm going to have a chapter on family stories. And it didn't work because so many of the drivers, they would fit into so many different chapters. You know what I mean? Like, they, they, they're, they're, they, they, they all had war stories, love stories, family stories, everything else. So it, it, didn't, it didn't work as a structure. I really had to, I really had to focus on each individual driver. Uh, to give them the, the they, they all they all deserved their own chapter. Was there anything in particular that you found a lot of the taxi drivers you interviewed had in common other than those those common experiences that you've just named? Were there any other things that you found about them as people that seemed to yeah. be the one thing that's I, I think I think all of us can imagine that the life of a cab driver that 
A, you know, they work hard, right? We can all imagine that they're, they, they put in 14-hour days. 18, we, could all, we can imagine that. We, all can all, we also think can imagine, because of, of who cab drivers typically are in this, in this country, we can imagine the garbage they deal with, you know, the, the, the racism uh, and, and, you know, the drunks and, and, and the nonsense and often the violence. I mean, we, we see every now and again, there's a story in the, in the, in the news of, of, a, of a taxi driver being, being assaulted or, or, or killed, uh, you know, on the job. Um, I found this group, this gruesome statistic that uh, in in Canada, the the occupation where you're most likely to be murdered on the job is a cab driver, not not a police officer, a, a, a cab driver. So we can imagine dangers and hard work, uh, and we can admire cabbies for what they endure, I guess. And we can also admire their, their work ethic. You know what I mean? Like, we, you know, I, I don't want to work as hard as a cab driver. I've never have, and I, and I don't want to. I told you how my, morning, my, how my days go. But we can imagine they work hard. We can admire that. What, I, what came as a surprise to me was how all the drivers I spoke to were like geniuses in their own way. You know, they, they had all, they, they have all had navigated their lives like chess masters. You know, and, and, and someone kind of figured out, you know, how to make a life for themselves and often showed this incredible practical intelligence. Um, I think of a, a guy, you know, one of my drivers was was up on charges. He was an Iraqi soldier who had assaulted a superior officer, was facing court martial and kind of got and in order to avoid it, got a desk job where he was able to, to hide himself behind bureaucracy and shuffle papers around and, and evade prosecution, you know, for for a year or two, uh, uh, just through pure smarts or, or, uh, uh, you know, a guy named Michael Kamara, who, who's a Sierra Leonean, uh, uh, man who, who lost his leg in this, in the civil war and was in a, it was in a refugee camp for amputees and just cobbled together this life for him, life for himself, opened up a tailor shop, also started the country's first amputee soccer team and, and, and competed internationally with this team. And just like, they're just so, everyone was so smart. There's, there was this, a couple in Calgary, Jas and Amrit, uh, this, this couple from, from uh, India. And, you know, they made themselves incredibly successful life just by cobbling together really lousy jobs. You know, they, they, would, they would come to, they came to Calgary and they, 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 they worked in hotels as, as chambermaids. They, they, they worked at Tim Hortons. They worked at uh, um, airport shuttle drivers delivering pizza. They realized at one pizza place, you'd earn more than the other pizza place. So they switched pizza places to work for, all this sort of stuff. And then eventually, you know, built a house where they have three generations living in that house. Their kids are going to university, all paid for. And so this, this, this smarts of, of the drivers was something that they all had in common. And, and it's not because they were doctors in Bangladesh. It was just because they're just... In, incredibly practically intelligent people. I really envied their, the, the, the smarts of all these men and women that I met. What sort of feedback have you received from the taxi drivers whose story you shared in the book? Do you still keep in touch with them? Yeah, it's funny. So yeah, a, a, a few of them, you know, I had, I had to, the book was done before the pandemic, as I mentioned, but when the pandemic hit and, you know, taxi drivers were, were and are considered frontline workers, you know, I, I wanted to follow up with, with, with some of them and got, got kind of updates for them too. So I, I'd already said goodbye to them all and then kind of went back and, and see how they were doing for this postscript that I added to the book. Um, but since the book came out, you know, 
most of the drivers got copies of the event. Uh, they all got advanced reading copies, and I was I was a little bit nervous, right? You know, but for the most part, um, well, not for the most part. Everyone I talked to was was quite happy on how they how, how they were portrayed, and they were quite pleased to have you know what their to have their lives expressed on on the on the page. I think I think most of them got were 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 quite quite happy with that. I was worried about uh, the the gentleman I just mentioned, Mo Jaleel, the the Iraqi soldier. Who I think is my favorite cabbie. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, um, but but Mo is a very uh, uh, compelling and 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 interesting man who is kind of a bully and kind of a jerk, but is also this very sensitive guy and, and wanted to be an artist and a, and a very kind of a tragic figure. Um, people who read the book, Mo is either their favorite cabbie or their least favorite, um, just because he's just, he was this kind of this really brash, arrogant personality. And so I was worried about how he was going to take his chapter, right? Here's, here's this guy. He's this six foot five ex wrestler soldier from Iraq, this big dude who has, who has PTSD and a tendency towards violence. I'm like, this is not the kind of person I wanted on my bad side. And so, and he was the one I was worried about. And when he read the book, he sent me a text immediately and he was thrilled. He, he kind of loved how I, he loved the warts and all, portrayal of him in a way that I don't think I would have if it was the other way around. You know what I mean? Like it was. And so I, th- I think that even makes him more interesting to me is that is that, I you know, I I told his secrets and you know, he, he kind of comes off as as, as kind of a prick. Um, but he but he realized that that was that was legit and <laughs> that was an honest portrayal of him. And um, so I, w- I was so happy that he was happy. And now I have a cab. If I need a driver in Halifax, Mo drive me around. Private cabbie. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your next project? I just yesterday got uh, some funding from the Canada Council to, to, to start a new book about, um, uh, you know, on a similar train of thought, I guess, kind of the, I, I, I want to look at the lives of migrant workers in, in Canada. You know, who are the people who we allow into our country to do jobs we don't want to do, but we don't let them stay? Right, they're 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 here for a little while, and you know, once once you're done, you you know you you can leave. And, and I think I want to look into the idea, like sort like who what are the backstories of of these of of these people, uh, these these farmers, these people who work in the fisheries, these long term care workers, you know, all, all, um, sex workers who come from afar and 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 then and then leave. You know, what are the, what are their stories, and what does it mean? What does that say about what it means to be Canadian? Who do we let be Canadian? You know, uh, in the end. So I think I think there's some interesting stories to be found there. I've I haven't done a single interview yet. You know, I, I'm on the very very uh, uh, early stages of it. I'm just I'm just in the thinking stage a little bit right now. But that's that's where I'll be headed. You know, once you know once we can once we can travel with with some confidence, and I'll be I'll be buzzing around. You know, talking to folks again. I'm very excited. That sounds very exciting. Absolutely. When you get to southwestern Ontario, we definitely know the people you can talk to for that. Yes. Yes, yeah. I know. So would you like to read something for our listeners? Yeah, sure. I'll read a little bit from my chapter. Um, it's called The Ballad of the Taxi Sheriff. And one, one of my, one of, another one of my, again, and you're not supposed to pick favorites, I know. But another one of my, one of my favorite drivers was, was a guy in Montreal named Hassan. Again, kind of a, kind of a genius in, 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 his, in his own special way. And I think this, this, uh, uh, this, a uh, short, short piece will kind of show a little bit about of, of, of his, his practical intelligence and creativity. So the Ballad of the Taxi Sheriff. 
The Uber driver wasn't sure what to do when the Lebanese cowboys ambushed him. He just arrived at his destination at the old port of Montreal when five men clad in cowboy hats, plaid shirts, and bandanas rushed his car and pounded on his window. While the cowboys distracted the driver, his passenger snatched the smartphone from the dashboard bracket and exited the car. He then handed the phone to the posse's leader, Hassan Katua, whose authority was made plain by the plastic star on his vest and the toy pistols on his belt. The costumed lawman pocketed the phone and handed the bewildered driver a receipt printed on, a, on paper that had been soaked in tea and burned on the edges with a cigarette lighter. The document read, We have seized the machine that you are using as a weapon for your outlaw activity that is impoverishing drivers in towns and cities. You will retrieve your weapon as soon as the governor of the province and or his minister outlaw and ban the illegal activities you're engaged in and the province returns to the rule of law that it is famous for. This was the autumn of 2015. Uber had been operating illegally in Montreal for about a year. The city's taxi bureau had issued thousands of dollars in fines and seized more than 200 cars, but the penalties hardly dissuaded Uber's drivers. Montreal cabbies were furious. They have turned Quebec into the Wild West, Hassan told a journalist covering his cell phone heist. Hassan turned back to the Uber driver and informed him that if he wanted his phone returned, he needed to take the singed receipt to the taxi bureau. After the driver sped away, Hassan pinned a mock wanted poster depicting Montreal Uber manager uh, Jean-Nicolas Guillemet, complete with a black hat and villain's mustache to a tree. Then he and his scowling deputies posed for a photo. Hassan realized that when the Uber driver appeared at the bureau to retrieve his phone, he'd have to admit he'd been driving for Uber and therefore would receive a ticket. But this wasn't enough for Hassan. I wanted to punish him, punish him a little bit more, Hassan told me. He planned to hold onto the phone for three days before bringing it to the bureau. That way the driver would lose a few days worth of income. Besides, the delay adhered to the operation's cowboy aesthetic. It is as if I sent the phone by horseback, Hassan said. It takes some time. Montreal's real police were not amused. As soon as the story of his ambush appeared in Le Journal de Montreal, under the headline, Cowboy Taxi Drivers Steal Cell Phone from Uber X, the police called Hassan. They ordered him and his accomplices to report to the police station or face arrest. Hassan summoned his posse and told them to suit up. When the four cowboys arrived at the station, dressed again in their cowboy costumes, a local television station was waiting. I regret not spending a bit more on the outfits, Hassan told me. They were all from the dollar store, but I did not know we'd be on TV. Police officers crowded the station entrance to watch the spectacle. The rest of Hassan's posse was terrified. They knew they could lose their work permits if they received criminal records. In the end, though, the police didn't charge anyone with anything. They simply scolded the men and demanded Hassan return the stolen phone. They told me they knew I wasn't a criminal, Hassan said, but that was the day I became the taxi sheriff. <laughs> That's brilliant. I love Hassan so much. <laughs> oh, and now we do too. <laughs> <laughs> Marcello DiCintio, thank you so much for being with us today. And everyone, you can see and hear Marcello DiCintio virtually at Bookfest Windsor 2021 this October.
Thank you again. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.